everyone. This is the ESOP guy. We are on a journey to an ESOP and fourth season. We're in summertime and for Floridian, summer is a long, long season and it's kind of never ending almost. But anyway, it's hot. So today I want to start off with this as we get into this topic because it's going to be a continuation of what we were doing a few weeks ago on the Mission Impossible stuff. So, so check this out. Okay, so real quick, I'm just going to give you the blow-by-blow blow here. Um, the bad guy, this is Mission Impossible 2. It's a scene clip that's called Stop Mumbling. The bad guy, who's really bad, is shooting what we think is Ethan Hunt. Ethan Hunt is played by Tom Cruise, of course, because he makes 15 million Mission Impossible movies. But right now, he just shot him in the leg. Stop mumbling. Freddy's got no choice. I believe I broke his jaw. <laughs> Freddy's got no choice. I believe I broke his jaw. So they're laughing about that. Obviously not so funny. <laughs> Stamp. I'm impressed. Right. We don't have a lot of time, Hunt. Whatever you got to say, say it now. Have a bird giving us a big smile. This guy can't smile. Like he's been shot. And so he's being taunted by this bad guy. No? What are you doing? Get down on your knees. No. This. I hate to tell you what's going to happen, but he's going to turn around and show him what it's like to unload his gun. This was known as getting your gun off. Okay, so while he's shooting him, he's smiling and, okay, that's totally evil, right? So we're watching this guy go down. Not good. If you don't know what's going to happen, it's kind of like, oh, man, Ethan Hunt, who's the hero of Mission Impossible 1, 2, and all the other Mission Impossibles is now probably dead, except for this. bad guy notices something on his finger he realizes something's not right he thinks to himself let's look a little closer he's kneeling down to ethan hunt at this point the music's awesome here by the way uh-oh. He just pulled the mask off. And guess what? He just killed his partner. And Ethan Hunt has totally tricked him. The whole mask thing, if you watch Mission Impossible, it's like you, we're all going to deal with this all the time. They always have like the best possible masks. Anybody can look like anybody in Mission Impossible. So he pulls it off and he didn't realize because he was so filled with pride and, and evil that he actually killed his own partner. So that's a great start. So the whole the whole scene here is about pulling the mask off. 
And so this topic today, it's going to be Mission Impossible 2. We're continuing in the series on ESOP feasibility. And one of the things that you're going to just go through in the feasibility is important. It's like, what are the tax benefits of an ESOP? And some of the things that we'll try to address early on in the in the conversation before we even get started is what type of entity are you? Like, are you an S-Corp, an existing S-Corp? Are you an LLC? We talked about this a little bit in the Mission Impossible 1 that we did. Um, but but recently, and this is why our, you know, kind of doing this topic literally right now, recently the IRS came out with this article and it says, and came out in on August 9th, IRS cautions plan sponsors to be alert to compliance issues associated with ESOPs. So I've gotten a lot of like conversation about this. I've had clients ask me about this. Like, hey, what what are you thinking about? What are you, what are you thinking about this? this? Is all over LinkedIn. People are posting about it. What's going on? So so this really works well with the feasibility conversations that we're going to have because it's going to identify what I believe is is really pulling the mask off of things in the industry that I believe are just kind of not right. So in, and I'm going to go into this a little bit more detail, but in 2021, I did a podcast called Tommy Boy. And in Tommy Boy, what we did is we went into the, to what this whole A reorganization thing looks like. And so today we're going to go, we're going to go back and deal with some of the things that we dealt with back then. And I think this whole thing has been kind of interesting for me for the last couple of weeks, only because it's kind of coming out right now. And I think it's just kind of by time, by the, by make it just makes logical sense that the IRS is starting to look at this stuff. So in this article, um, this is important. So in the article, the IRS commissioner, Danny Werfel, is quoted as looking at spotty or the spotting ex- aggressive tax claims as they emerge and warning taxpayers. The IRS is now taking swift and aggressive action to close the gap. Part of that includes alerting higher income taxpayers and businesses to compliance issues and aggressive schemes involving complex or questionable transactions, including those involving ESOPs. Now, what I had said back in 2021, and I'm going to say this like as we go through this, one of my biggest awareness items for ESOP, the ESOP community, and let me just stop for a second and just talk a little bit about you know, the podcast, because first off, the podcast itself that, we're, that we created in 2020 is really there. It's, it's a resource and it's free, doesn't cost you anything. I don't get paid for this. I don't like I do this because I do like it and I think it's important for people to have this additional resource. When I first started doing this, you know, I just felt like it would be another resource to kind of make it, you know, clear and be helpful. As as time has gone on, what I realize is that is there is a lot of of in, unfortunately, I believe a lot of uh presentations with within the ESOP world. And I would say particularly at these conferences that we all go to where you get where I would say the majority of information about ESOP is is generated, my problem with with it is that they're not giving you the whole story. And they're be able, they're able to say things like, hey, this this very complicated tax strategy, call it a strategy instead of a scheme. The IRS is calling this a scheme. This complicated tax strategy should cost more because it's saving you so much money. Right. So that's the, that's the kind of thing I've, I've heard and I've seen. And, and I'm not against, like, just to make sure I'm very clear. I'm totally not against the conferences. I think they're so helpful. 
when it comes to connecting with your peer ESOP companies and having a forum to ask direct questions. I think that's phenomenal. I think it's un- ir- irreplaceable. What I am saying is, is that the, the problem with the conferences is that the people that speak at the conferences are the ones that are sponsoring and um, putting the more the biggest dollars into these associations. And um, the problem is, is that they're the only ones you're going to hear from. And they're the ones that are going to coming up with these types of things so they can, um, in my opinion, go back and be like, all right, well, it's a, you're saving a lot of money and it's complicated. So now as we, as we start to take what we're going to talk about today is this IRS warning. I'm going to br- bring some light to that warning, just like we did back in 21 and talk about the, the reality of 1042. We're going to talk about the S Corp exemption. And try to just put some sobriety to what this really is, because um, I back in twenty one I was like, this doesn't make any sense. I've never used this. I would never. I would never su- suggest or recommend anybody use this. And I think it's it is recommended by people. And I you you can kind of guess for yourself why. But deep down, I just want people to be aware of it. So if the IRS is saying it now in August two thousand twenty three. And you're doing a transaction this year or next year or whenever you're going to do it. And you're doing this just boom for it. Fair warning. So that's what this is going to be about today as it relates to ESOP feasibility. So as we start, um, I want to just say, if you think this podcast is helpful to you, please, you know, subscribe to it. You know, would you share it with a friend that you think is, you know, helpful? Another somebody that's going through the ESOP. Um, and then finally, would you, would you, put a star five star rating on our, our our platform that you're listening to. So that's always helpful as it kind of validates and creates this credibility that people are looking for. Again, I don't get paid for it. So it's just it's more for you guys than it is it is for me. So as we go through this IRS notification, so you can go right on and Google that IRS cautions plan sponsors to be alert to compliance issues associated with ESOP. So you can review, you review the full article. But one of the things in the article that it talks about is, is for instance, as it talks about the, the schemes that he, that Dan Werfel had talked about in, in the first part of the, uh, the article. For instance, the IRS has seen schemes where business a business creates a management S corporation whose stock is wholly owned by an S corp by an ESOP for the sole purpose of diverting taxable business income to the ESOP. The S corp purports to provide loans to the business owners in the amount of the business income to avoid taxation of that income. The IRS disagrees in, with how taxpayers interpret this transaction and emphasizes that these purported loans should be taxable income to the business owners. These transactions also impact whether the ESOP satisfies several tax law requirements, which could result in the management company losing its S-corporation status. So that's one of the schemes as we look at it. As we think about the um, this A rework as, an, as we go through it today, it's going to be understanding that you can't, let me just say it this like black and white, you can't manipulate the IRS rules just because you want to take advantage of everything that you possibly can under the sun. And that is what I believe is happening in the industry as we, as we start thinking about it. So let me explain the way I, the way I understand the A reorganization. So it's as a statutory merger or consolidation, these are mergers or consolidations affected pursuant to um, and under the state corporate law. So a merger really is a union of two or more corporations. Um, a corporation retains its existence and absorbs others. And or on the other side, a consolidation occurs when a new corporation is created to take the place of two or more corporations. So 
as we think about just doing a reorg just in general, there's nothing like some of CPA perspective, there's nothing wrong with doing a reorg, right? Um, we can, we, we will often identify the entities as we start thinking about an ESOP transaction and feasibility and determine like it's more efficient to be, um, more one, one entity, right? So that, that's not the problem. What I'm talking about is the problem when it comes to, um, trying to get the 1042 because you're trying to become an, from an S corporation to a C corporation, trying to get the 1042 and then flipping it back to an S. So, so what's happening in this type of, like I would say scheme is that the company sets up a holding company as a C corporation with all of its shares being sold. Then the entity then is merged into the holding company, but then needs to be, a, there needs to be another entity for this to work. The owner has p- potentially real estate, a real estate company, and they conclude that as another subsidiary to the holding company. They then take the 1042 at the C corp level. And then after the ESOP sale, convert the S corporation or the C corporation to an S corporation. So, so in effect, what they've done is they've been able to, to convert that to a C corporation, pick up the 1042 benefit and then, and then move it to an S corp and then get the benefit of being an S corp exemption. So let me stop for a second and just go backwards a little bit. um, Just so it's clear for people that are brand new to this. A 1042 is an IRS code section that says in an ESOP transaction, as long as you're a C corp, then the the stock that they the, the owners hold can be in a sense like kind exchanged with eligible securities. So, just like a 1031 exchange and a 1042, you're going to sell in an ESOP transaction. You're going to sell the company's stock. Then you're going to reinvest that into a qualified replacement property with eligible securities. That's pretty much done by an investment group working through the transaction or after the transaction to make sure that happens. So nothing wrong with it. You're a C corporation. There's certain rules to a 1042. You have to do like a 30% transaction. You have to have owned the stock for, for, for three years. So there's certain rules to that type of thing. Now on the S corporation side, if you are an S corporation and you sell your stock as an ESOP or the ESOP is owning S corporation stock, you whatever the ESOP owns of that S corporation stock, the the income that that entity creates is now exempt because the K one goes from the company to the trust and it's exempt from taxes. So as we go through this, like that's the that's those are the benefits, right? Now, so it it is the rule in IRS if we if I revoke my S election, then I'm going to um, to create. Well, if I revoke the S election, I automatically become a C corporation. So that's kind of how the the tax rules roll. Now, technically, what happens is we would have to be um, a, a five a C corp for five at least five years. So I revoke the S election. I'm a C corp for five years. I have to wait and then convert it back to an S after the five year period of time. So what we're talking about is a way that they're they're that gets pitched because of a, a private letter ruling that you can take an S to a C and then back to an S again. That's what we're, that's what we're saying. So as we go through that now, after like, as we've gone through this research with different people, um, they've reviewed the legal authority and that others are using to support this, this idea, this notion that you can create a newly formed C corporation. That would be the sole shareholder of an S corporation 
merge those S corporations into the C corp, sell the C corporation to the ESOP, claim 1042, and then immediately after that, elect S corporation status for the C corp. So unfortunately, those legal authorities do not stand for the proposition that 1042 treatment would be available in that type of transaction they describe. One of the legal authorities cited is known as the private letter ruling, which is a ruling that the IRS issues to one party that cannot be relied upon by anyone else. But that generally reflects the position of the Internal Revenue Service. So that ruling addresses how to apply the rule that says an, a, a corporation that revokes its S election and becomes a C must keep its S status for at least five years before it can reelect S status. The ruling says that you can merge an S corporation into an existing C corporation and immediately thereafter elect S status for the new corporation. The technical holding in that private letter ruling is that the loss of S corporation status for the S corporation that is merged into the C corporation is not treated as a revocation of S corporation status, thereby triggering the five-year waiting period for reelecting S corp status. In the context of merging an S corporation into an existing C corporation, um, that makes sense. But we be- we believe the ruling accurately reflects the IRS's position on the issue. Because of that private letter ruling, if ten if Section ten forty two were not an issue, they see no reason why an S corporation could be merged into a newly formed C corporation with a surviving corporation immediately electing S corporation status. So in that situation, there is no policy reason suggesting the S corporation status should not be available to the surviving entity. Now, that's kind of the way that people look at it. So the, the primary concern is that none of the legal authorities cited involved a 1042 election. In fact, there is another private letter, letter ruling, um, 1999-52072, which an S corporation converted to a C corporation. The S, the C corporation stock was sold to an ESOP. The selling shareholders claimed 1042 and the corporation asked the IRS for special permission to reelect S corporation status before the five year waiting period. In that case, the IRS rejected the request to allow a reelection of S status before the expiration of the five year waiting period, holding that doing so would circumvent the clear congressional intent of section 1042. So when we think about this, the intent itself is to grant tax-deferred treatment upon the sale of a C-corporation. Um, that's not enough to legitimize that whole scheme. So that's allowing a C-corporation to be created out of thin air and used to effectively facilitate the sale of what would otherwise be an S-corporation to an ESOP only in order to obtain the 1042 completely circumvents the purpose of Section 1042. So while, uh, while some have argued in that that having a legitimate business purpose for creating the, S- the C corporation would adequately address this concern, what we're saying, and this is the research that I, I had come up with, um, that A, is not accurate statement of law. B, it would be a real difficult, if not impossible, to prove a business purpose separate and apart from the real reasoning for establishing the new C, co- C corporation, um, which is to obtain, of course, the Section 1042. So based on all of that, the uh, research shows really that if someone were to create a C corporation, merge an existing S corporation into that C corporation, sell the stock to a newly formed ESOP, and then reelect S status after the closing, the IRS would challenge the Section 1042 election. Or the other side of this is alternatively take the position that the co- company is not really a valid, valid S election. So, what does this really do? It puts in jeopardy as we talk about it. It really puts in jeopardy what actually is. Um, available to the, the shareholder, you know, or to the company, right? So there's, so as we, as we start to kind of pull this together and I went through the, the research that was kind of saying, this is not a solid 100%, uh, 
tra- uh, strategy for somebody, even though it might really look okay and, and somebody that has a lot of experience that can present this really well. So, and when you get down to this, you you do subject yourself to something happening to the 1042 or potentially the S-Corp. So, which means that do you, you know, the question mark for us is from, from this tax scheme or whatever we're, we're going into, is it worth it to you to go through this whole process and expect to get all of that out of it? Now, we've talked about this this year. There is new um, legislation coming down the pike in 20, I believe 27, 28, where S corporations are going to start to get to 1042, but they're only going to get like a small piece of it. Like they might get 10%, I think is the, is that is what we talked about earlier. So, so there is good legislation going on within, I think the IRS moving towards this, but I think in general, I wanted to kind of step into this, the idea, and it could be a different type of scheme when it comes down to it. I think the question mark is finding like what is really when somebody presents something to you, um, what is the, what's the reality of that? And, and how much does it hold water with who, you, what you're going through? So as you go into the feasibility part of this it is to extrapolate what is your, what is your IRS plan when you get down to it? And what I mean by that is, is are we an existing S corporation? Are we, an existing C corporation. Um, and in the feasibility part, when we start thinking about that, that will, where that matters is first off, validate that those, those strategies work. So that's really the first part of what I wanted to get to. The second part of what I wanted to get to is whatever that is. If you, if everybody feels good about it, now the, the, now the, the advisor can go through the important part of taking that information and extracting from it the cash flows available from the tax benefits of being an ESOP. So why is that important for feasibility? Because those specific quantifiable cash flow numbers that are going to be the benefit. Now for a C-Corp, if we have to be a a C-Corp, we're going to stay a C-Corp. The benefit is going to be primarily the contribution of the principal and interest payment on the inside note that gets to be deducted from the income that the company is going to um, create each fiscal period. So that's going to be the benefit as, as a C-Corp. So we can quantify that benefit, add that back into the cash flow so that when we do the debt structure, which we talked about in the first part of the series, we can then anticipate with that benefit how much cash flow is available to service the debt, pay for the ESOP compliance costs, and then net us out at the end um, some type of cash position that the company has. The other side of it is is that we have now the benefit of if we are going to just we're an S corp we're going to stay an S corp we're not going to do any of the stuff that we just talked about. Then okay, so now it's a little bit easier in that model because we're just going to be if it's whatever the ownership is of the S corp stock that's going to be exempt. So either way, we're going to quantify the cash flow benefit of becoming an ESOP company for the benefit of of underwriting the company's cash flows against the debt that we're creating. And again, we started off with this idea that we're creating debt because we're we're buying out the uh, owners, and the owners have cer- a fair market value of of what those shares are worth. The company's perch by we're basically borrowing the money to purchase those shares on behalf of the employees. So the other part of that is to is to try to work through the the math when it comes to how much. Um, if you are not a hundred percent S corporation ESOP, how much those contributions are going to be 
which then comes back to estimating in feasibility what the uh, the potential inside note is going to be. So we're going to get we're going to get deeper into that as we go, but the main thing I wanted to kind of just graduate to is this idea that um we we need that those numbers and we need to model them out because we need to know um do we have what we need to manage through the debt and from a benefit standpoint um I think the biggest thing here too is these are the way the tax benefits work in an ESOP transaction. So with all of that, I wanted to kind of stop and just say thank you for listening today. It's a little shorter than what we would do normally. Um, I did kind of borrow content from the 2021. So, you've, you know, I just wanted to kind of highlight some of those things. I wanted to make this very applicable to the, the most recent news out there. So I think that's really the value of, of just trying to re-up this information. But I don't feel like there's anything different um, that we had back in 2021 than we do now. I still think these are um, – if it doesn't look right or if it feels like it's too good to be true, um, I think you just have to kind of investigate that at a lot of different levels. So thank you so much for listening today, and we will definitely see you on our next step on this journey to an ESOP.